Hi, it's been a while. This is Renee Teet, and you're listening to the Becoming a Data Scientist podcast. This isn't quite season two yet, but that's coming soon. So for today, you get a special treat of a between seasons episode with a different style than most of what you've heard here so far. I took a break from recording as I transitioned to my new job at Helio campus, working with educational data. And a few days ago, I was lucky enough to be invited to participate in a non-work-related post-election what-the-heck-just-happened discussion about the U.S. election forecasts, along with a bunch of other cool people, several of whom were actually involved in making these forecasts and have amazing insights over how that's done. We're calling it Decision Boundary 2016, Margin of Terror. I was joined by Jonathan Morgan and Chris Albin, hosts of Partially Derivative and CEO and Chief Science Officer at New Knowledge, respectively. Partially Derivative is a really fun data science podcast I once gave a not-so-glowing review to, but has since won back my listenership, and not just because they invited me to be on. (laughs) And you should definitely check it out. We were also joined by Mark Stevenson, founder of Red Oak Strategic, who was once called one of the Republican Party's top data scientists. Natalie Jackson, who runs a Huffington Post pollster site, which tracks thousands of polls, makes forecasts, and has some nice election data visualizations. Andrew Terrio, Chief Data Officer of the City of Boston and former Director of Data Science for the Democratic National Committee. Joel Gruse, Data Scientist at the Allen Institute for AI and author of Data Science from Scratch, one of the great red and white O'Reilly data science books you're probably familiar with if you're learning data science. And the whole talk was moderated by Andrew Musselman, chief data scientist at a major consulting firm. And by the way, Andrew Musselman and Joel Gruse have a brand new podcast out that I haven't even listened to yet. I think they recorded their first episode today. So check that out at adversariallearning.com. I have high expectations for it. I'll post links to all their Twitter profiles and websites in the show notes. So take a look on becomingadatascientist.com. This discussion is syndicated from Partially Derivative Podcast, so if you're already a listener there and this sounds really familiar, you're not crazy. Enjoy this special episode and keep an eye out for Season 2 of Becoming a Data Scientist Podcast in the next month or two. All right. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Decision Boundary 2016 Margin of Terror, a special special super mega data podcast crossover. Fantastic. Um, we have an awesome group of data scientists and political data insiders from both parties, and we're talking about the U.S. elections. As I'm sure everybody will know, Donald Trump's victory surprised almost all the pollsters and forecasters and pundits. Um, did data science fail us? We'll find out. Plus, what will Donald Trump's administration mean for the data and larger technology communities. Um, A few points of order. There are a lot of people in this discussion, so uh, bear with us if things get a little bit chaotic. Also, pardon the sounds of typing in the background and whatever. Uh, We need to do a little bit of coordination during the recording via Slack just to keep things moving. Um, Also, I'll let everybody introduce themselves. Uh, Just to kick things off, I'm Jonathan Morgan. I'm the host of Partially Derivative and the CEO of New Knowledge, where we try and model human behavior, um, as is tradition on the Partially Derivative podcast and as an escape from this wonderful election season that we've all enjoyed. Um, many of us are drinking. I'm drinking a beer called America. Uh, I kid you not, that's that's the name of the beer. I will be drunk on America by the end of this discussion. Um, and now I'll turn things over to Andrew Musselman, who will be moderating our discussion. Over to you, dude. 
Thanks, John. Um, my name is Andrew. I am chief data scientist for a large consulting company. Uh, I know some of these folks from social media and uh, local lo the local data science community. Uh, I am drinking a uh, beer from Oregon, uh, brewed by Ninkazi, called Total Domination. Hey guys, my name is Mark Stevenson. I'm the founder of Red Oak Strategic. We are a analytics and data science firm. Uh, started in Republican politics, we do corporate and finance uh, work as well, but we do still do a lot of political work. Uh, tonight, I'm drinking Sip of Sunshine from Lawson's Finest Liquids in the state of Vermont. Hey, everyone. My name is Joel Groose. I work at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence in Seattle, and I wrote the O'Reilly book, Data Science from Scratch. Um, I host my own podcast called Adversarial Learning with Andrew Musselman, our moderator. And I am drinking a Red Hook ESB at Housewarming Party about several months ago, and I still have like dozens of them left over. So that's what I'm drinking from now until the end of time. Hi, I'm Renee Teet. I'm a data scientist at Helio Campus, and I'm creator of the Becoming a Data Scientist podcast and learning club. Um, I'm at Becoming Sci on Twitter. I'm a news junkie and data junkie, so I'm really excited to be here. And thanks for inviting me, guys. Um, I'm drinking an English brown ale from Three Notched Brewery, which is local to me. It's in Charlottesville, Virginia, and the beer is called No Veto. So it's a tribute to Patrick Henry, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death, and appropriately political for tonight's talk. I'm also drinking green tea with honey for my voice, which is just back after about two weeks of laryngitis. So I'm really glad I'll be audible tonight. I'm happy to be here. Hey, all. I'm Chris. I host Partially Derivative and run a company with Jonathan. I am drinking the world's worst old-fashioned made by me, and it really tastes horrible. So it's, it's not really that great, but it's alcoholic, so I feel pretty good. Hey, I'm Natalie Jackson, and I'm probably one of the most hated people in America right now. I run Huffington Post Pollster. That's a site on Huffington Post with all the polling data, um, forecasts, you know, basically everything that got it wrong on Tuesday. And I am drinking Diet Coke because I'm still afraid that if I start drinking, I won't stop. And hey, I'm Andrew Terrio. I'm currently the chief data officer of a city which deserves better than to be named here. Uh, but until this past June, I was director of data science at the DNC. Uh, given that, I, I had threatened on Twitter to be the first guest on Partially Derivative to be just drinking Jaeger shots, uh, but something about German hunters really didn't appeal to me. So instead, I have a, a Canon Narragansett right here, which I'd like to think of as the new and, and acceptable Yingling. With that out of the way, uh, we do have a, a rough set of agendas uh, or agenda items that we wanted to cover. Um, Given Natalie's commentary, I, uh, it, it's one of the things on the list is uh, why did the pollsters get things so wrong? Yeah, so that's a great question that we don't have a lot of really good answers to yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so at the national level, the pollsters didn't do too badly. A lot did have Hillary Clinton with a narrow lead. It looks like she's going to maintain a narrow lead in the popular vote. Um, but at the state level, things kind of fell apart pretty badly, notably in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. So there's going to be a ton of work in the coming weeks and months by pollsters and people like me who work with pollsters and deal with all their data to try to figure out what was up with that. Yeah, I would chime in here that uh, there's a lot of things that, that may have gone wrong with the polls, but before we even get to that, you know, one thing I think we have to keep in mind when we're evaluating this is that this election was actually a, a lot closer than it feels for, for a lot of uh, people, at least on my side of the aisle, where, you know, 
at the end of the day, it, it looks as if uh, Hillary Clinton's going to come out on top of the popular vote. And, and really, the margin across a handful of states is really quite small. So, you know, it, I know it feels for a lot of people like a, a really catastrophic a, and defeat and, and blowout. But really, when it comes down to polling, you know, we weren't actually that far off. We were a few points off from what the, the averages were showing. There was uh, definitely an issue there, but I don't think we should think that this is a case where, you know, the polls just didn't even get close. Yeah, I, yeah. I, would, I would agree. I think um, to Natalie's point, we will see more data come in, you know, once the election is certified and we actually know who voted, um, you know, who was who was surveyed and who we didn't survey. Um, you know, over the years, it's it's just gotten very difficult in many ways to survey. Um you know, a wide swath of voters and it's gotten more and more expensive. And, um, I think new methods have emerged. Uh, some campaigns have emerged or, or have embraced some of those. Um, I think though that once this, once the data comes out over who voted and how they voted and you did see such a big jump in early voting this year, and it's going to be interesting to see, uh, how many of those folks maybe voted early that, uh, possibly could have, or would have voted on election day that, Maybe we were missing in some of the surveys publicly. I think some of the private polls that probably were happening within some of these campaigns were probably a little tighter just because of the, the data that they were looking at. But I would agree with Andrew that um, they they weren't significantly off in some of the states based on some of the averages. And some of the trends did start to you know move in Trump's direction, I think, at the end. So uh, as more of this data comes out, we'll, we'll start figuring out you know what actually did happen. Yeah, looking back after the fact, this is Renee, I saw that um, it was actually surprising how much 538 was sort of hedging their bets that they were giving warnings like it doesn't look so great for Clinton in the state level polls, um, you know, and tr Trump's lead is increasing in certain areas. So it's interesting how much they were hedging. And there's also a, a good article by David Pluff, who was Barack Obama's campaign manager, um, about what he personally got wrong about, you know, his gut instinct or his forecast. And he talks about things like the Democratic turnout being weaker than expected, um, the fact that this was a change election, so there's more of a kind of an insurgence kind of movement than they expected, um, the third party effect uh, was stronger than they expected, the message being muddled um, in terms of single ish, single titles not sticking to Trump because there's you know a long list of things being said about him, whereas he's very good about staying on target with his um, criticism of Hillary. Um, so it's that's a good article to read about um, you know, what he thought he got wrong. But yeah, it, it was interesting that I, I personally maybe was in denial about it, but so I didn't notice those um, kind of alert articles just before the election. But looking back, there were quite a few. Yeah, so so this is uh, Joel. I, I also read that Blue article. I liked it a lot. Um, but uh, so as a data scientist, I don't know if I should, uh, you know, speak about anecdote or not. But, you know, you do see some articles talking about where people willing to admit to the pollsters how they were voting. And kind of anecdotally, I have friends on Facebook who were Trump supporters and who posted that support to sort of very limited private friends groups because they didn't want to be public about it. Um, and I did not see the same of the Hillary supporters on my friends list, although it's quite possible that they had those private groups and they excluded me from them. So, uh, but but I wonder, you know, how much of that was going on. And I've seen articles kind of arguing both ways. Yeah. And this is uh, this is Andrew Terrio. Um, just to to build on Joel's point, I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the areas where 
we may have missed out is if Trump voters either didn't respond to surveys or, you know, they did take the surveys, but they were more likely to say they were undecided when really they did have a preference. But there are a few other reasons that might also be the case. I think one of the main ones to focus on is the way that surveys do likely voter models. So, you know, in the public polling, uh, a lot of these are done via dialing either random digits or or in some cases, people from the voter file, but still random digit dialing is, is surprisingly common. And what happens there is essentially the pollster has to go into it with a model of what they think the electorate is going to look like. And, and what's the best way to proxy for, you know, the composition of the electorate? Well, I think it's pretty commonly uh, understood that, that just looking at registered voters as a total population isn't going to give you an accurate picture. But then if you're going to narrow that down, how do you do that? Um, in some cases, you know, we'll take into account things like uh, what people, whether or not people say they're going to vote or, or, you know, whether how much they voted in the past or how interested they are. But oftentimes what it, what happens on the back end for weighting of surveys is that pollsters will have an idea of what they think the electorate is going to look like and then weight the responses they get to adjust to match that. And the problem with that is you have to figure out that baseline. And if, you know, the pollsters were setting a baseline where their best guess was that the electorate was going to look like 2012 or, or some combination of 2008 and 2012. Well, that's just not who turned out. And that kind of gets to the, my second point on that, too, which is that uh, we could have seen a case where, you know, we had a lot of Democrats who uh, were being included in these surveys because they voted in eight and 12, but ultimately didn't end up turning out because we did see you know, turnout, I think, from the Democratic perspective, was really disappointing compared to where we had hoped to be. And so if people were being included in surveys who weren't actually turning out, that's something where, you know, it's really hard to adjust to that. And it would very much uh, go a long way towards explaining the results we were seeing. Yeah. I mean, as a layman, it's it's interesting to to I, I have no idea, you know, how the how the turnout shifted in any way or. Um, you know, who voted last time or, you know, two times ago, how they, how they changed their mind. And uh, I, I am really fascinated by the idea that, uh, you know, a lot of these polls are based on self-reporting and I'm, I'm curious, like how that stuff, you know, what, how, how, if any way, does this election change the way you might uh, approach that problem in the future? Well, one thing that it looks like the campaign uh, and the RNC, have, you know, they picked up on a little bit before the election is some of this, some of the things that were happening in rural areas. It looks like Trump did a, did a really good job in converting voters there that were, you know, probably independent and, and more uh, swing voters to, you know, to turn out. It looks like he overperformed obviously where Mitt Romney did in 2012 uh, in the rural areas. And so Places like that, you know, you, you you look at that on a voter file as you're doing these surveys. Um, those may be places that individually make up one, two, three percent of a state, you know, election share. But obviously, when you total all of those together, they make up a you know a big share of a state. And I, I think once we start looking at that data, we're probably going to see some places where the um, you know the the rural areas did very well for Trump. It looks like. Um, the, the urban areas, it looks like, did did equally well for for Clinton, maybe as as they were for Obama in twelve. But um, just the 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 wave of those rural voters was able to kind of overcome some of those things um, in Trump's favor. It looks like, at least preliminary. 
I mean, one of the things that has really interested me this time around was this is the f- this is the first one where we I think saw this really widespread use of presenting the data in forms of probability, which um, you know is 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 a is kind of an issue where um, probabilities are hard for like people to explain and or like to explain to people right like what what is ninety percent people are like oh it's a sure thing and it's like well you know no it's not a sure thing right we think it's 90 percent, but like we're not even sure this 90 percent. but even if you had a dice that was 90 percent heads like you're still gonna get tails and you know and, and stuff like that like there is this probability literacy thing which yeah, i you know i feel like we are going to get better at of how to explain probabilities to people or display ideas of probabilistic trends with people um that that you know we're i think we're still in an infancy right because every that probabilities are the right way to explain it but it's not necessarily the way that i could explain it um you know to to my dad or something like that who never did any stats yeah so one this is natalie again one of the things that there was the most debate over was in these forecast models how much uncertainty there was and what the probabilities were that hillary clinton would win versus donald trump and, you know, my model was one of the more extreme ones that had uh, Hillary Clinton at 98% and Donald Trump at less than 2%. And that was because, you know, the polling data, while it was kind of all over the place, it was uniform in showing a Hillary Clinton win. Whereas, Nate Silver and 538's models had a lot more uncertainty built into them. Um, He looked at historical polling errors, things like that, you know, and our model just trusted the polling data too much and ended up with this really high probability, which, you know, people took to mean that no matter what, she was going to win. And in fairness, that, you know, you see a 98% probability, that's kind of what you think. Um, we need to do a better job at, of communicating this. And for me, that's been one of the big lessons is, you know, just how much uncertainty there is around this. And, you know, we thought it was a fair approach to just model the, um, the polls and what the polls think. Um, but it turns out that that, you know, in retrospect, people viewed that as pretty misleading. So that's definitely something that I would rework in the future because people don't understand the idea of the uncertainty and that this only works if you actually turn out to vote. Um, so that that's a big issue that I've learned in the last week. But, you know, this is, uh, this is Joel. Uh, probabilities are hard. And so we can say, you know, we need to educate people more about you know, what it means to think about, think about these things probabilistically. But for instance, the other day I got into kind of a, you know, a friendly argument with a bunch of really data savvy data scientist people about what is the right way to judge these predictions? You know, okay, here's what I predicted. How should we judge this on a one-time event? And, and, and that's a hard question too, right? How do we, how do we judge predictions that are probabilistic? Related to that idea about how do we judge the or judge the results or the output of our models. I, I have a question kind of for Natalie and, and Mark, that would be interesting to hear both of both of your takes on it. And I hope I'm not putting anybody on the spot, but I think the one of the reasons that people 
or maybe are distrusting now of the these kind of uh, model-based forecasts is that people look at the Huffington Post and recognize that it's a fairly liberal publication. And they say, well, of course, your model predicted that Hillary Clinton had the best chance of winning. And I'm not saying that that's what occurred. Um, but I'm just curious about what the two of you think, given that you're on kind of either sides of the political spectrum, um, about how human bias and in interpreting model output might or or interpreting polling data or deciding how to weight the model, et cetera, et cetera, like how that plays into this overall equation. Yeah, this is Mark. I mean, I think um, in that regard for for data folks, it's we, we, we're going to look pretty much at the data and look at how the model is built. I think the bigger question, you know, the voters are, are assigned, you know, a probability of turning out. They're assigned a probability of, and I'm talking about the way a campaign would build this, not so much from a, uh, public polls, but so, so a campaign is going to, you know, assign a voter, a score based on how likely that person is to turn out, how likely that person is to support their candidate and, you know, certain issues, et cetera. But really it's the, it's the turnout and the candidate scores. And so as those, as those scores are going to shift over time, or as we actually have people that we may not, may know less information about, um, you know, for, for us, you know, for most data uh, folks, it's it's really irrelevant about who's kind of publishing the the model uh, as much as it is the data that's going into it because you need good data going in, but you also realize that these models are going to change over time. And uh, like Trump's campaign was, and I'm sure like Clinton's campaign was, you know, you're refreshing these things over time, and so you're starting to see trends happening. You're starting to see the data shift, and um, I think some of those trends were happening going into election day. Uh, you know, it'll, it'll have, we'll, we'll see based on who voted um, and uh, where those people, you know, lived. And, and once we get everything certified, what actually happened. But uh, I, I think it's more of focus on the data than, than more on the uh, ideology for us. Yeah. I'm the same way. Um, my focus is on the data, but at the same time I do work for Huffington post and that is probably the number one thing that gets lobbed at me is, oh, you're just a liberal shill for Hillary, you know, and I was actually kind of grateful that the numbers were in Hillary's fav favor, because if I had been predicting a Trump win, my life would have been miserable over the last few months just because of Huffington Post's readership. Um, well, I, but just to break in, what, wasn't that Nate Silver's hell in the last, uh, in the last uh, months or weeks was... People were people were asking why uh, why he wasn't falling in line with the polls, and so I, I can see that happening. Yeah, yeah, he he did pick up some of it, um, and I th I think it's that people don't understand the different ways of looking at the data. You know, where Nate Silver looked at it and saw a whole lot of uncertainty and polls going everywhere. I looked at it and saw yes, the polls are going everywhere. But there was literally not a single poll that showed Trump winning yep. in Wisconsin ever. Yep. You know, so, so I, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I have a, I have an old, like a meta question about this. Is, is this, was this year just fundamentally non-predictable? You know, I think in some ways that's a good possibility. You know, every indicator we had, even moving beyond the polls, you know, most indicators favored Hillary Clinton. Everything, you know, we some other people on my team started looking at non-horse race questions on polls. You know, everything favored Hillary Clinton that we were looking at. And, you know, it was beyond 
ideology. I, I spent time digging deep several times throughout the campaign to make sure that I wasn't putting an ideological bent on this. And, you know, it was just everything was so favorable to her. Yeah. And I, I think it was just a genuine surprise in some ways. I, I, if I guess Mark, I, I think, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that this was a uh, non, you know, predictable year. I think there were models probably within both parties that were very close in terms of where turnout was going to be. But I think that the, um, you know, just where both candidates stood going into Election Day probably meant that there were some voters out there that we just did not know as much information about. And we may just uh, were, you know, we may have been unaware about where they may have been breaking at the end or less aware um, than in, in years past, just due to the fact that, one, there may be people that were less likely to take a survey. Two, there may just have been people that sort of were in this middle, uh, you know, middle ground of, of sort of not in a Trump bucket, not in a Hillary bucket, but ultimately ended up breaking in Trump's favor. But we just may have you know, known less information about those folks going into Election Day. Can yeah. I can I, mean, I just jump in and follow on that for a sec? Sorry, sorry, Andrew, to interrupt, but th- this is Jonathan. It, it's um, it, it's for Mark and and maybe um, Andrew uh, Terrio. We we got an interesting, we got some interesting feedback from a listener, um, a guy called Tyler Richards who does election forecasting at the University of Florida, and um, and he was saying that he thinks that pollsters actually haven't figured out how to predict turnout for rural America, um, which, as we've been talking about, is, was such a kind of a big driving force or um, had a big impact on this outcome. And he was saying that it's a drop in the number of landline phones. Um, he said it depends on voter file data that might not be as predictive as, as kind of everybody would like to think. And I was just curious about both of you guys having worked so closely with that um, that kind of data and information, if you had, a, had some thoughts one way or the other about it. Yeah, this is Andrew. I think uh, I, I would even take it a little further uh, than that, than just to say it's about rural voters. I think t- figuring out what turnout's going to look like in the future is always going to be an issue uh, because ultimately what this is about is predicting a future event. And, you know, we're thinking about presidential elections. I mean, you know, we've had several dozen of these in the entire country's history. Really, we've only had maybe a dozen since the advent of, of what we might think of as modern polling. And so that's just not enough data for us to be able to come up with any model of what the overall electorate is going to look like. The best we can do is, is to judge what's going to happen in the future based on things like, uh, for example, you know, patterns of how past election turnout for a given individual predicts their turnout in the future. But the problem with that, of course, is that when we have a change in, in the pattern and, you know, that might mean going from, well, as, as we seem to be seeing, 12 to 16, but I think the, the clearer case is actually, say, 04 to 08. You know, if you use the 04 electorate to predict what turnout was going to look like in 2008, what you're going to say is you're going to miss uh, youth turnout, you're going to miss minority turnout to a, a really dramatic degree. And so this is something, it's not something I would blame on the pollsters. This is just a question that has no good answer to it. And everybody has their own preferred method for how to get there, but ultimately nobody has any clearly right answer about, you know, what the turnout pattern among the whole electorate is going to look like. Yeah. I mean, just to give an example of that is Mark, um, you know, the Florida turnout comparing 12 to 16, um, number one, it shifted immensely towards, you know, early voting. Uh, there was law changes in the state to help with that, but, uh, turnout was, you know, was, uh, 10% higher 
than almost 11% higher than in 2012. But, you know, the, the folks on my side actually predicted uh, turnout in the state within, you know, about 100,000, not even 30,000 votes. The folks at the RNC had, you know, projected turnout of about 9.4 million and it ended up being 9.38 million. So um, they were, you know, they were pretty close in terms of predicting the turnout in the state. I think to Andrew's point, I think, you know, there's, there's always going to be a challenge in uh, predicting, you know, uncertainty about people that we know less about. Uh, you know, obviously we're using large data sets and, and there's just folks on that file that we don't have as much data uh, to, to inform our models around. And um, so building sort of ways to try to predict how maybe larger events are going to move, you know, move those types of people or how individually we can reach them. You know, all of these things are challenges that as data scientists and analytics practitioners, we sort of are going to, you know, uh, look at with each election. But um, I think that, you know, the, the techniques are always changing, but I do think that there were some success stories and, you know, predicting turnout in, in many ways um, was one of them for in a lot of the states this cycle, even with big jumps in in the numbers. So I think, um, I mean, uh, something else that's kind of an interesting thing to bring up um, is that, uh, and, and and I don't know, Renee, if, if you want to jump in, I know that uh, it seemed like you maybe had a question about this. So actually, before we move on to the next thing, do you want to do you want to hop on? Because I think your question was is a really interesting next place to take this. Yeah, I kind of wanted to hear from everybody now that we've done, you know, the data talk and the official polling and why things might have gone wrong from a data perspective or a data collection perspective or analysis perspective. What do you, what does everyone think in terms of gut feeling? Like what happened? This is Natalie. So I'll jump in. Um, I, I really think we just, we being the polling community just failed to get the right set of people this time. You know, my, my gut feeling, even from like Tuesday night at 1am when I'm trying to make sense of the madness and um, you know, my first thoughts were non-response, you know, people who refuse to talk to pollsters. Um, we spent a lot of time disputing the idea that there was this hidden Trump vote that people kept claiming there was. Well, we can't dispute that now. You know, we've got to look at so that. There, so, so that was a dispute, and I'm sure you, you discussed it. I mean, how can you, can you give a, without revealing too many details... Can you can you talk about what that sounded like from from your, you know, from from the people you were talking to and people you were arguing with and the whole bit? Because that thing I, I think is really really wild for us because, you know, this came in as a, a quote huge surprise to everybody unquote and uh, you know a, you know a year and a half I I thought when I saw him coming down the uh, the escalator I was like could happen totally could happen and you know when I when when I see people being shocked by everything I. I'm honestly not, I'm just, I don't get why people are so surprised. And it's so out of the ordinary that, you know, it seems like there would be an enormous, uh, like, misrepresentation in the self-reporting. Yeah, I, you know, I had the same thought, too, when we did the coming down the escalator thing. I was like, oh, my gosh, this could actually be a thing. And then in the primaries, his numbers just kept going higher and higher and higher. And so the primaries didn't surprise me where they did a lot of people. Um, but then the general election, I think a lot of 
liberals, even moderates, expected the general electorate to be different and to reject some of the ideas that Trump was espousing. And, you know, I think it was just living in a bubble. We wanted to think that this wasn't the world we lived in and that everyone who was going to vote was seeing just as much of this as we were. And, you know, one thing that I would say occasionally, but then ultimately didn't take to heart enough myself was that these people aren't paying attention to every little thing he says and does. They just want an agent of change. And, you know, I didn't think that was going to be enough to give him the election, but it turned out it was. So it's sort of the, uh, the similar message from, a, uh, from two, two seasons ago of hope and change. And he was offering that. Except with a really dark twist. But yeah, it, it's kind of two <laughs> sides of the same coin. Which, which from, from another side might, you know, the Obama message would have been a dark twist too. So it's interesting. Yeah. yeah I mean, one of the things that, that really struck me, this is Chris, is that, you know, like you, you start to realize that like from a data science perspective, presidential elections are actually rare events, right? They're regular events, but they're really rare. And a lot can change in the country in between two of those rare events, let alone if you've had an incumbent, so you're at the eight years at that point. And it's 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 one of those things where, you know, like all data science in, in this kind of vein is based on, you know, polls and then past behavior and that kind of stuff. But there's a lot of, you know, areas that 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 change and you're kind of like reinventing the model. Like we we haven't been doing, you know, applying algorithms and and quote unquote big data and that kind of stuff to elections for, you know, a hundred years, we've been, this is probably the third where we've, you know, had a really rigorous data approach. This is still, you know, that we, we are real novices in this kind of thing. And so, you know, this is, this is virgin, virgin territory. So it's our third sprint is what you're saying. So this is the retrospective. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) The way that I've been able to explain it to myself is concluding that this whole thing was all about empowerment. Um, and when we talk about, you know, how does race come into play? How does gender come into play? To me, it's when, when Barack Obama was a candidate, a lot of people that had previously felt powerless at most levels of government in our country finally felt represented, like their voice had some power. You know, African-Americans could say, finally, one African-American president out of 44. <laughs> like, that's a start. Um, it can happen. And Americans finally you can see us as potential leaders at the highest level. And for women, same with Hillary, one female candidate, maybe one 45th of presidents will be a woman. <laughs> but then overall, um, any group that's been underrepresented among presidents could now see a path to the presidency and feel included. And the Democratic Party definitely made that part of the message. <clears throat> but for the white, straight, Christian male constituents that have traditionally been the dominant group in power um, and that, that maybe we see it as an old school um, you know, point of view, but that's still very common in rural areas especially. Um, it wasn't one out of 44 or one out of 45. It was a drastic change to the status quo, a, a break of a continuum. And, and there was a loss of power that needed to be gained, and I th- regained by them. And I think that's why that, 
making America great again slogan, you know, caught on because America was great to them before, you know, all these groups got additional rights and protections under the law. And um, I think that was the overarching thing that drove people to rallies, that feeling like that loss of power and representation and that need to regain it. And what I haven't been able to explain to myself then, though, is like, how did Donald Trump, a wealthy, you know, gold embellished Ivy League real estate developer with this abrasive personality on on TV from New York become their spokesperson. Other than that, he was willing to. Um, he doesn't come from them. I would say he doesn't understand them, though apparently they don't agree with that. Um, I see Trump as someone who has never done anything for anyone but Trump. And I'll be surprised if he comes through on any of these changes that actually improve their lifestyles that they're expecting. But like Natalie said, he was an agent of change and the anti-political establishment candidate. So maybe that's all it came down to. Yeah. Hey, th- this is Jonathan. I, I actually, I, this is, it seems like this is a good time to bring this up. Um, I mean, maybe I should preface by saying, I mean, obviously people who listen to the podcast know that I, I can be fairly partisan um, and, and I was a, a Clinton supporter, but I think what I was surprised by and maybe what the country was surprised by is that how divisive this election was. Like I know a number of people who like have taken this result really personally. Um, and, and I think that was probably true of the last election where people felt like they took it really personally. I, I think I, I saw a Pew uh, Research Center study that showed that something like 49% of Democrats or 49% of Republicans thought that Democratic policies were dangerous to the nation and and vice versa, something like 55 or 60%, and I'm getting these numbers wrong, um, but a, a slightly larger number, but still really significant percent of Democrats thought that Republican policies were dangerous to the nation. And I just wonder, like, how, how does that play into the way that voters respond? Um, how does that, how, how do we model that kind of human response to an election that's so divisive, where the rhetoric is so intense. Um, does that have any impact? Or is that just like politics as usual? And, and where we get, you know, up in arms about it every election cycle? Well, and I'd like to jump back in on this. So, you know, we're predicting things that are, are human behaviors. Trump is unprecedented. We don't have anything that currently exists to um, model that on like someone said on Twitter today, you can model the hundred year flood and build your, your flood barriers to protect from a hundred year flood. But then there's going to be a 200 year flood or a thousand year flood at some point. That's going to over overtake that, you know, Trump yeah, but, had no, but military, honestly, sorry, Trump had no military or government service before no major newspaper endorsements. You know, he didn't release his taxes and the things he's promising to do do affect people very personally, you know, repeal or replace Obamacare, you know, keep uh, Muslims from immigrating into the country or put up these extreme vettings, you know, uh, put up a wall between U.S. and Mexico. They were not the typical politically divisive talk, but personally against certain large groups of people talk that hadn't been, you know, in the national discussion for a while. So I think um, that did make it much more personal and that makes it much more much harder to model because people are reacting with their guts and not with a logical you know list of policies that they're checking off so this is this is joel um renee said something really that i found really interesting Uh, she said you know how did donald trump become the spokesperson for all these people other than that he was willing to um and i think that's a lot of the answer he was willing to he went out 
and spoke to these people. And he he's not one of them. You're right. Um, but he he said what they wanted to hear and he spoke to their concerns. Um, and that's, I think that's a lot of how he appeal, appealed to them. Um, it's also the case that he had a message, uh, you know, his message was make America great again. And we can talk about, um, you know, is that, you know, a dog whistling towards a time when minorities didn't have rights, or is it just referring to a time when people who didn't have a lot of economic hope had economic hope, but Whatever it means, it's it's a vision and it's a message. And, and what was Hillary's slogan? Her slogan was "I'm with her," and that's like some people find that inspiring, I guess. But it's not, you know, she's not promising to do anything. She's not lighting a fire under anyone. So, so my personal view is that she was actually uh, one. She was not. She was not a great candidate. Um, but two. A lot of people live in bubbles, as we've talked about, and kind of can't wrap their minds around Trump's appeal. Uh, you know, so if I had a nickel for every time I saw on Facebook someone sharing John Oliver destroys Trump, or you know, here's Lena Dunham rapping about Trump. You got to see this. This is the best rap I've ever There's seen. There's a lot of evisceration going on yeah. too. Or you know, here's the here's the cast of Hamilton. Uh, you know, singing about Hillary. Like everyone I know on Facebook, you know, loves Hamilton. Um, but how many people in rural Ohio or Pennsylvania love Hamilton? Uh, prob- probably not real many, I'm guessing. So I think I'm about to shock Joel and, and everybody else who ever watches us uh, go at it on Twitter. But I actually really agree with him on this point, where I think on the Democratic side, when we're talking about, you know, what happened and where do we go from here? I think one of the real big questions is, you know, are we pitching something where we are trying to give the voters something they want? Or are we just saying, here's what we think you should want and then dismissing them if they don't go along? You know, I, I, this is something that really worries me with with campaigns. I watch them where it seems like there's a lot of the messaging which is meant to make the people who already agree with us happy. And what I worry about, you know, this isn't so much about specific. I issues in the way where, you know, I'm not saying we need to run to the middle and triangulate. You know, what I'm saying is, are we thinking about what matters to the voters or are we thinking about what matters to us and assuming the voters at least should agree with us and have similar priorities? And then rather than changing what we say, dismissing them if they turn out to not actually think the same way we do, because that that ideological purity approach you know, my worry is that, well, that's great if you want to keep losing. Um, it's not a practical choice. It's a, 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 you know, ideological choice. And as as somebody who's a real Obama-style pragmatist, that really worries me. I, I think we need to meet the voters somewhere in the middle and try to find a way to have that communication with people who, you know, we may not want to go grab a beer with all the time. And they probably don't want to go grab a beer with us. But ultimately, if we're going to win any elections... We need to build a coalition of people who wouldn't or the otherwise get. Yeah, and I uh, I agree with those points too. And I, I think uh, there's a couple other things that are interesting to me. Um, they're related, and one is who are the polls for? Uh, are the polls just to drive click click views and ad revenue? Uh, and are and are you know do the polls affect the? Of course, they affect the, the people's behavior. Um, but you know, finally, one one point I got to make is like, why do we always feel like we always need to agree? 
So why do I always need to agree with one candidate? Why do I always need to agree with and feel like when I vote that I'm, you know, becoming a part of a tribe? I, I don't, I'm not, I'm kind of tired of that, that sentiment. Yeah, this is Natalie again. Um, I think there's a good discussion to be had on the philosophy of what are polls for? You know, I, I think a lot of times they get a bad rap for being designed to drive clicks. The, um, you know, the most interesting poll results are often not, you know, they're the outliers usually, but they're the ones that get the most play. There's actually an article, I forget who the authors are, I wish I could think of that, I would name check them, um, who did work on this. I believe it was published in Public Opinion Quarterly not long ago. Um, and the most interesting stuff gets the most play, which is not necessarily fair or right. And it leads to this perception that the polls are just for clickbait. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think polls are the way that we learn about what, you know, how else do we learn about the state of the race? In this case, they messed up and they weren't quite telling us the state of the race, um, maybe as much as we thought. But, you know, what other alternative do we have? That's the question I always ask people when they, you know, question the value in polls. What else do we have that tells us what a large number of people think? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to agree with Natalie. I mean, I think the the encouraging thing about the polls, I'm going to make two points. One is the encouraging point about where the polls were this cycle is that you had public media polls that were fairly rigorous in terms of their uh, methodology. You had tracking polls happening you know, um, that were being published publicly. The data was being released, um, by numerous outlets, which, you know, that, that sort of transparency is something that was pretty new to 2016. Um, you know, we, my company did a, did a survey with Google surveys and it ended up being, you know, 0.2 percentage points off of the national vote. So, I mean, you have these new technologies out there that companies and media outlets were able to use that, um, you know, just gave us a ton of data to look at. So that's, that's an encouraging thing, but just to kind of get back quickly to the point of the environment, I think, you know, an interesting thing to look at in terms of the exit polls, um, was that, you know, a majority of the people that were surveyed, almost 25,000 people in these exit polls, um, were not people that strongly favored their candidate and Trump won those, you know, won those individuals, uh, overwhelmingly. And, um, so I think that kind of speaks to what the environment was this cycle and how he was able to really do a, a you know a good job of, in his messaging. But it was probably the reason he was in uh, Michigan and some of these places in the Midwest was just due to the fact that there probably was this this fairly large group of voters that really either hadn't made a decision or didn't feel very solid in their decision and, and you know leading up to election day and he was able to capitalize on that. Hey, this is Joel. I just want to jump in on something that uh, Musselman said that I thought was kind of interesting, which is, um, you know, do voters need to agree with their candidate on everything or, or can they disagree on some things? Because it feels like, you know, some of the rhetoric is Trump said X, how can you vote for him? Well, you know, you could vote for him if you didn't agree with him on everything, but you agreed with him on other things. Uh, 
whereas the the criticisms that I heard of Hillary were were less around here's one specific thing she said and more kind of broader about her as a candidate or her as a character. And so it's possible that you know some of that divide was was this idea of I can vote for someone that I don't totally agree with versus I need to vote for the person that I agree with on everything. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, this is Mark. I'll just jump in real quick. I mean, again, back to the exit polls. You know, the the biggest thing in terms of quality um, in in a candidate that that voters were looking for were that they could bring change. I mean, almost forty percent of the respondents um, said that, and Trump won those people with eighty three percent of the vote. So uh, clearly, you know, that was a top issue for people, and that was driving some of their decisions. So I definitely think in this case you were seeing uh, the fact that, you know, they may not have agreed with everything that he said, but that was the foremost thing driving their vote decision. And that ultimately probably, you know, uh, helped him win. Yeah. So I mean, as far as like the, the, the environment, you know, like that, this was a, this was a change election, you know, people voted for change. Um, I remember a couple years, uh, you know, a couple cycles ago when when Obama was was running on change, that was a legitimate message. You know, there were there were a lot of issues going on. Uh, the economy was tanking, and jobs. I don't know if jobs were 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 hemorrhaging like they were after after he took office, but you know, before this, in the, in the run up to this, the economy was was looking good as far as a lot of the key metrics, and you know, jobs are good, uh, stock market's good, so. How do people reconcile that that message worked again uh, when you know it's it's not even true as as far as you know the the typical metrics that people use? Is there something missing for from you know from how we judge the economy and how it's doing? Or is that I mean is it a an economy econ, economist problem or uh, you know like a are we ignoring the, uh, you know, a, a segment of the population? I, I think it's an interesting thing to, to explore. Hey, this is Jonathan. I can I can jump in and 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 maybe just respond to that a little bit. I think, um, I guess, I, I don't want to take this totally off the rails, but I think what's been interesting about this election cycle is that there's been a lot of focus on the way that people consume their information um, and kind of how that actually might shape their worldview. There's a lot of conversation about people getting their news almost entirely from Facebook and other social media sources and how, you know, the 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 best experience that people can have on that platform is one in which they feel, you know, they feel good and people feel good when they see information and hear ideas that are similar to their own and hear perspectives that are similar to their own. And that's created these echo chambers in which you can you don't need to necessarily interact with reality, so the story goes. Um and I think, you know, Joel, you you hit on that a little bit earlier. Um the way that there's this kind of incessant um, obsession on on the left with um, sort of uh, deriding you know Trump supporters as as being racist and misogynist and and over here on the left we all love Hamilton and we like how he sings songs and makes fun of Trump and and then on the right you know Hillary's nothing but a criminal and a crook and so on and so on and 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 I wonder if that contributes a little bit to this phenomenon that you're um that you're asking about andrew um and that that we don't really we're not having a discussion about reality necessarily when we're deciding which candidate or which campaign we're aligning ourselves with 
I don't know. I mean, does that, uh, I, I know, I know Renee, you wanted to jump in. I'm not sure if that's something that you wanted to comment on or that you've been following, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd be interested in having a conversation about that. Like, why is it that we don't seem that the kind of traditional, um, barometers for how the country's doing didn't seem to apply in this election? Yeah, and um, I re- originally was saying I wanted to respond to something that um, Joel asked a while ago about <clears throat> what does make America great again mean? But it also goes along with this, you know, what is this climate in our country? What's going on? And based on the issues that Trump's voters have been gravitating to, make America great again appears to mean, you know, before the modern era of the liberal lawmaking at the Supreme Court level. So Trump has talked about overturning Roe v. Wade. He has on his Supreme Court list the judge who wrote the opinion on allowing for-profit companies to be exempt from having to cover birth control and their health insurance. Um, They're against same-sex marriage. Um, voting rights protection, which, funny enough, was struck down because it was supposedly outdated. Um, Trump ran on the wall to keep, you know, Mexican criminals out. Uh, according to him, he wants to keep Syrian refugees out who are leaving their country because their president is killing them. And there have been a lot of defensive Trump voters on Twitter today saying, just because I voted for Trump doesn't mean I'm racist. Or like someone said earlier, um, I shouldn't have to agree with everything that a candidate says in order to vote for them. And I agree with that. I voted for Hillary and I don't agree with everything she says. But the point is that Trump voters tolerated racist messaging. It wasn't a deal breaker. So saying you don't agree with everything he says, um, but tolerating a message that many people feel is literally going to put their lives in danger puts you in a bucket that's ignoring the concerns of people who have actually been killed and put into camps or enslaved or not been able to sit in a certain part of the bus in the not too far distant past in our country. So it's almost like you don't have to agree with everything he says, but there are certain things based on our country's history that should be now considered deal breakers. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that this is Chris, uh, you know, like, just as as a preface, I live in a very rural area in a a town that, you know, is uh, used to have a massive mine and used to have a massive uh, factory that shut down. And it's right along the border. And, you know, it is one of the things that I've found sort of during this election that I, uh, you know, had learned about in political science, but I, I experienced firsthand was something called the low information voter which is that, you know, I am a high information voter. I obsess about politics. I read a lot about politics. I have literally a degree in political science, I guess, multiple degrees in political science. And, you know, most people in in my town voted for Trump. Most people in my county voted for Trump. And their knowledge of Trump was very low because not because, you know, like, just because they couldn't spend their entire lives watching the news and reading news articles, they had thousands of other things to do. And, you know, like it is, this is the one part that keeps on coming up with me is the idea of, well, how do you judge the behavior of a, of a low information voter where 90% of your ads, 90%, you know, no one watches debates. No one reads the 50, 50 ads. No one reads the, you know, 10,000 news articles about the latest drama of whatever, like they watch one ad and then they're done and then they don't talk to anybody and then they walk to the polls, which is a really difficult group to understand um, data wise because they don't connect with our traditional data sources as much as we would like. Um, and it's something that I don't really have an answer for, but I'm, I just it's so apparent now that that is a group that I would love to understand more, which I 
don't. Hey, so so this is Joel. Um, I have a couple of things. One is in uh, response to Renee's point, uh, where she listed a lot of things, um, you know, about what Trump said and what Trump promised. Uh, and she said, those things should be deal breakers. And, you know, that's that's a very common view among, you know, my Facebook friends and my Twitter feed is that these things should be uh, should be deal breakers. Uh, but to a lot of people who voted for him, those things were not deal breakers. And and I I feel like part of the resentment that they feel is uh, being told this should be a deal breaker for you. This should be a deal breaker for you. You are a deplorable if this is not a deal breaker for you. Um, and, and so th- this should and the should be deal breakers. I, I feel like in in some ways that's yeah. part of the disconnect. Um, I yeah, the, I agree with you, man. Yeah, and, the other thing and I just, wanted to just say, to yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, the other thing I wanted to say just about the kind of the economic statistics is yes, the stock market is at record highs, but like the median American, how much do they have invested in the stock market? I don't know that number, but I don't think it's a very large number. And you know, the employment rate is at you know, a good level, but the employment rate is a little bit dodgy, right? Because it doesn't include people who have removed themselves from the workforce. And you look at like labor participation rates and things, I think those numbers are not as good. Um, So that, you know, both of those things, they're good, but are they representative of the experience of people kind of out there who are not, you know, wealthy tech workers or whatever? Uh, Less clear. Yeah. I mean, I was trying to cut in about just the, you know, somebody raised a point the other day um, that, you know, something that people ignore is that there are things that are disqualifying about Hillary Clinton. Um, she supports abortion. I mean, that's that was that was the one comment that I heard that I, you know, totally blindsided me because I hadn't I hadn't even thought of that. You know, for me, uh, Donald Trump was just so you know obviously you know the whole bit just obviously in in incapable of, of holding a position. Um, you know his uh, you know his his approach toward uh, planning was non-existent. Basically, if you were rolling a D&D character, it would be a chaotic, who even knows, you know, not even, don't even decide evil, neutral, good. Um, so, you know, it was surprising. And I, I think I was, you know, I was kind of blinded to, 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 to the, the drama and the, the, um, you know, the, the excitement about uh, how this couldn't happen here and that whole bit. Uh, but you know there there are some long held uh, there are some long held very deeply held positions that people have that when it all, when it all comes down to it they can pick and choose what they want to not want to vote for and that's you know that's something that that I think a lot of people forgot about too. I mean, maybe just to, to to turn it over a little bit from. I mean, we've been we've been doing a lot of kind of analysis about you know what it means. Uh, how did we you know, how did data science let us down? How did data science do well? And we've been focused a lot on the election itself. But I mean, here we are kind of regardless of what everybody might have thought the outcome was going to be or what we might have liked the outcome to be. Um, here we are. Donald Trump's been elected. He's the president-elect. Um, we know some things about uh, about his policy and, and sort of the cabinet that he's been putting together over the last few days. Um, what do we think this looks like from our perspective? Um, as, as data people, as technologists, um, we've seen a real change in policy or change in focus, I think, from the Obama administration. We've had the first chief data scientist of the United States. Um, you know, we've had the the kind of office and science and technology policy continue to push kind of open data initiatives. Um, they've been focused heavily on precision medicine and on and on and on. Um, data's had a really big role um, in this administration. And do we think that that will change under a Trump administration? Do we think 
that it'll be kind of business as usual? I mean, how do we think this will impact us in the data community? Anybody have thoughts on that? I think it's interesting just to know that um, data science isn't just, you know, straight numbers, straight math, that we do need to bring these qualitative you know, environmental context into it. Um, so I, I like it from that perspective, just that it shows, you know, it's not just math or it is math, but there's, it's probability. So there's always a little bit of uncertainty to it. And I think people are starting to understand that and that you need more than just, you know, a bunch of data. You also need some insight into the domain that you're forecasting. And this is Andrew. Um, actually, in my current role, I work a lot with the White House uh, Office of Science and Technology Policy with DJ and his team over there on things like the White House Police Data Initiative and their Data-Driven Justice Initiative. And, you know, I know that team is looking at basically the end of the Obama administration as the end of their work there. But I know that there are a lot of uh, other people who have been, you know, putting out statements that just because they don't necessarily agree with the, the administration that's coming in, that doesn't mean they're abandoning government. And I think the biggest one, uh, I, I'm guessing a lot of people saw a blog post go around recently about somebody over at 18F, uh, which is a basically a government, uh, I guess the best way I describe it is a tech consulting service within the federal government. You know, I think there are a lot of people who are going to, uh, to, to approach this as if, you know, things weren't changing because they're in government to do good. And, you know, it kind of doesn't matter uh, who's in the administration in terms of more basic things about how do you improve general quality of life? That's it's it's less of a policy choice thing, and in a lot of cases, it's really about what what in the political science world we would call valence issues. Things where you know you can come up with some ideas of objective quality of life indicators. Things like you know you want more people to be unemployed, or sorry, you want more people to be employed rather than unemployed, and and it doesn't really matter which party's in power to uh, to to further that goal. Uh, I know also, you know, over the next few years, I think cities and, and states are going to become a lot more important in this role of pushing progress forward, both on a policy level and on a, a technology level to make sure that, you know, anything the federal government stops providing is covered for at other levels of government. So this is Joel. Um, I think it's also important to distinguish uh, between, you know, government data operations and non-government data operations. So could that change, you know, affect people who are running data departments for cities or counties or states? Um, yeah, yeah, it could. And, you know, Andrew's better uh, versed on that than I am. But, you know, is it going to change what's going on in the data department at Stitch Fix, for instance? It's probably not, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know what goes on there, but I imagine that it's not... Uh, it's not that influenced by whatever's happening in the data science department of the OSTP, right? Well, I guess I, I mean, just to jump back in, the, the, this is Jonathan again. I would ask, like, I mean, the there've been some very, um, uh, I mean, and I, and I take your point, Andrew, but I guess like you know, DJ and his team have been pretty specific about the about kind of making transparency part of their um, initiative or making the, the this idea that open data is essential and vital to the way that a democracy functions like part of their initiative. And I just, it's, it's not even so much that I have read anything from um, or heard anything from the Trump campaign that would, um, that would uh, refute that, but it's like, it, it just hasn't even been 
part of the discussion. It's, it's been so far from the rhetoric of the campaign trail that I wonder, like, how much do we really know? I mean, do we have any intel? I don't. Does, it, does anybody know anybody on the Trump transition team? I mean, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot, Mark, but if, if you have any, I don't know if you have any insight on the kinds of folks that are circling around this problem and if you know kind of how they think about it and what they what how they might participate in the upcoming administration. You know, I don't really, but I think the you know, the most notable uh, tech person is probably Peter Thiel, uh, who I think is is on in some, uh, you know, in some capacity. But the point that I was going to go back to was, you know, as data and to kind of the, the point that Andrew made about data and government and things. I mean, the, the the good thing that we're seeing from a campaign perspective is that, you know, States are becoming more open about the data that's being released. You have organizations, um, you know, ProPublica, Open Elections, those kinds of folks that are trying to standardize the type of data that's available to data scientists and political scientists out there in terms of results and, you know, things like that to actually make that sort of, you know, tabular and actually available uh, in an easy format so that we can analyze it and see what's happening in elections and actually try to you know, pinpoint problems or pinpoint trends. And, um, you know, really up until the last few election cycles, that data has been uh, very difficult to to capture. So I think the good news for, um, and I don't know where the policy will go in terms of data under a Trump administration, but the good news is that uh, data from elections has, has continued to become more available um, which helps, you know, people like myself and Andrew to, you know, do these sorts of analysis and, um, you know, really makes it available uh, to, to anybody to, to start becoming a political, you know, sort of data uh, geek, if you will. Yeah, this is uh, this is Joel. Um, I just wanted to say that if by chance I were uh, appointed to be chief data scientist in the White House, um, I would be all for open data. If people are listening <laughs> who are in charge of appointing chief data scientists. Yeah, I mean, it, it is something that people have been talking about. I know people who have been interviewed uh, at the White House for for that group, and um, it's kind of interesting to because I, I think that I think liberals have a have a viewpoint that you know we're the only ones who want open data. We we're the only ones who want open you know city data and stuff like that. And I'm curious to know from you know Mark specifically, do you, do you have a sense of like do do Republicans or you know uh, from from people who who uh, I mean, do, do they also want open data in the same way, or is there is there some different flavor, or can you can you fill us in on that? I mean, I just think generally there's been a trend among people from both parties that that's becoming more and more accepted. Um, I think that uh, you know within, and I'm I'm referring more to you know on the election side than than maybe on the government side. Just I, I don't know as much about that side of it, but I think that. That has been um, from well, from a technological perspective, it's gotten easier to release some of these things, and I do think that um, as states kind of catch up to each other in terms of standardizing the formats, and um, it becomes cheaper for them to release these types of things, I think you're going to just see uh, people from both parties accept that as as sort of a reality of of what's next to come. Yeah, I mean, and you know, I, I I fully admit that I have a a quite a quite a liberal bias, but it does seem that the um, the folks on the GOP side have an interest in suppressing data when it's convenient. And I, I'm you know, I this is also a question for for everybody. 
Um, is it is it in the interest of the the republic for uh, as much data to be shared across the aisle or across the the, the handful of parties? Hopefully, in my view, um, so that people can you know use data as much as possible to make it a less adversarial you know winner take all type of type of situation. Because um, I think there's there's there seems to be a lot of uh, it it seems to be overly set up to be a uh, you know a huge ball game that if you lose oh my god then you have you know you have you have four years of this shit right so it uh, it's an open question but mark i mean if you wanted to take it or uh natalie or anybody or maybe uh someone from the other side you know i mean i think you know this has been a huge question for me because uh you know under uh, the obama administration over the last eight years, I feel like as a data scientist, I've had many more avenues of interacting and contributing to the government in ways that I wouldn't have had before, right? You have things like, you know, you have things like hackathons, you have things like micro micro grants or, or micro contracts, I think was a thing that five or that 18F uh, pioneered where I could say, oh, I'll, I'll take $2,000 to make a website for the government and that kind of stuff. And I didn't need to go through all the standard contracting procedures. And there was lots of data available, but not only that the data was published, but that I felt like there was a way for me to, if I had done something interesting with it, I could go back to the government and say, hey, this is cool. Look at this thing that you haven't seen before. Like, let's try to, you know, work out some grant situation where where we could do some cool stuff with that. I felt like that was an opportunity. And because Obama has, you know, been the president for eight years, and I don't really, as a data scientist, I don't really have much experience, literally zero days of experience under a, um, under a Republican presidency, where I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that that continues to exist, right? Because even though I might not be Trump's greatest supporter, I would absolutely love to, you know, improve St. Louis's data portal or contribute to, you know, like I, I live, you know, in a rural area, I'd love to build the data portal for that rural area. And I'd love to be avenues for that. Um, and that's something that has been a, a really positive push under the Obama administration. And I, you know, I, I hope that it continues to exist. And I literally have no idea. And this is Andrew. Uh, just to speak to this question of open data, I mean, I agree with Chris that it, it's really, it really remains to be seen what's going to happen in the next federal administration. But most open data work really does take place at the, the state and county and, and local levels. Uh, even if you look at data.gov, the federal open data site, you know, most of that data is just contributed data from uh, states and, and counties and local governments. You know, the, there's a degree of, of open data from the federal government, but that's actually you know, not the majority of it. The bigger question is really when you get down to municipalities, when you're talking about things like police data, where there, other than a few areas, uh, like, for example, FBI crime statistics, where there are standardization rules, really there isn't a, a real idea of what it is that, you know, f forget about what should be shared, what even is collected. You know, there's no standard system for that. And so that's one of the things that the White House's police data initiative has been working on is trying to to build up some models for what that should look like. And I think that's something that is going to progress regardless of who's in charge at the federal level, uh, in part because of the work that's already been done, you know, with data.gov, for example, that's running on an open source platform called CCAN. And, and that's actually what, uh, you know, what our open data portal is about to transition to. And there are a lot of other governments that are using the same platform. So I think 
the groundwork has been laid and that's a movement that's not going to, you know, it's not going to stop just because of a change in the, the presidential administration. I think it's a movement where we're going to get to a, a level of more and more data over time. Hey, so this is Joel. Um, I'm kind of an old timer and I've been doing data science-y things since like 2006, even though it wasn't called it back then. But uh, that means that I do have a couple years of data science experience under the Bush administration. Um, and as best as I can remember, uh, it was a lot of wrestling with Oracle. So it was kind of terrible. So do we want to talk at all about um, trust in data in general after all this? So, for instance, will somebody, you know, be trying to pitch a data sure. science project at their company and their manager will just be like, well, they couldn't even forecast that Trump was going to win. You know, how, how will that work for our marketing team? You know, is this going to affect, so you know, maybe down ballot type yeah. data projects? Well, you can always you can always take take this. This is a, a lesson and. It sounds like it. You know, this was a this was a highly anomalous event that that people did not expect, and that's something that always happens with data projects. At, at some point, you're going to find out something that you just never expected. So, yeah, this is Natalie. So, I think there's going to be a lot of repair work to do. You know, the feedback that I'm getting is that people are very angry at polls and at the data that predicted a Clinton win. They're very upset. They don't, you know, lots of, I'll never trust you again. I'll never trust the polls again. You know, um, so I, I do think there will be some challenges um, in talking with some pollsters over the last couple of days and some polling companies. You know, they are already hearing these things. And so I think my answer to that and my answer to the HuffPost readers, as I wrote about Wednesday night, is, you know, we owe it to you to be as open and as transparent as we can. Um, well, not even as we can. We owe it to readers and to our users to be as just completely open about the process of going through all of this and you know, figuring out what went wrong and how we're going to make it better. And it's going to be a long and slow and difficult uh, trudge to get that trust back. But I think the only way to do it is through transparency. And this is Andrew again. Um, you know, I think even we're, we're going to have this question on, on the, the internal campaign side for Democrats, which I, I you know, I feel kind of embarrassed to say because uh, in a, a report that I put out actually with uh, Natalie as a contributor for O'Reilly this this past summer. You know, I said, well, there was the battle between the new school and old school, the data people versus the in-stream team experience people, and the data people won. Uh, you know, I do worry there is going to be some kind of backlash where now this is going to be a talking point for people who don't think that really data is is the future. I think that's just going to be a, a, a you know a way that people who have a vested interest in uh, not doing as much with data get to argue their case. But, but I think that might come back. And that's a worry for me, you know, as, as somebody who is very much in favor of using data in democratic politics. We even saw something that came out uh, today or yesterday from some of the senior strategists in the Sanders campaign who are making the argument that the whole big data micro-targeting approach was really, you know, small organizing. It was, it was, it was a small-scale politics that just fundamentally was broken. And, and my reaction to that was just 
incredibly frustrated because this was something we fought against so much where, you know, the things we do, I, I think we're being put up as a straw man uh, for people who work with data, you know, and I, I, there are some of some people on the data side to blame who, who over uh, advertise its benefits, but really what data can bring to a campaign isn't about, you know, shifting the outcome by an order of magnitude. You know, we're talking about incremental improvements in terms of efficiency and effectiveness of campaigns. You know, if a campaign is going to be won or lost by 10 points, then yeah, data is probably not going to make a difference. But it's these sort of one or two or three point campaigns, um, which, you know, obviously this was one of those cases where data can really make a difference. Not saying that data was the difference here. You know, we don't know if uh, data meant that, you know, it was just a, a smaller Trump victory than it would have been or that Hillary would have won. I'm not ready to judge on that. But at the end of the day, those are the kind of campaigns where data makes a difference. And so just saying, oh, my God, we were off by a couple of points doesn't mean that data can't help. Yeah, I would agree with Andrew. This is Mark. I think, um, <clears throat> you know, one of the places that really data helps a campaign is in efficiency and um, in guiding, you know, the best place to spend the million dollars, the $10 million or the, the you know, the hundreds of millions of dollars as to how that uh, how that money is spent and how you're reaching out to voters with the, with the right message and reaching out to the right voters with that message. So, um, you know, I think that, that, that will continue to, uh, get better over time because I think that, you know, the, the results that we, um, saw on Tuesday will inform and, and help, uh, guide better, you know, tactics, but also help strategically kind of guide campaigns as to, look, these things can happen. These sort of big groups of folks that we don't know a lot about, um, can move obviously in big, in big directions to really, uh, out, you know, influence the outcome of an election. So, um, I think in, to, to help with the efficiency of a campaign data is still always going to be sort of a, a really important part. And I think that as practitioners of it, we're just going to continue to look at what did work this cycle. Um, in terms of sort of seeing some of the trends going into election day, but then what are the tactics? How are we going to reach some of these voters that we may know less about who are less likely to respond to a traditional survey? You know, how do we actually get uh, information about them maybe through other means that, you know, help our campaign and help our candidates? Yeah, I think, and, and maybe, maybe that's actually a good point to end on. Um, this is, this is Jonathan and maybe I'll just kind of, kind of wrap things up. I think that the, I, I've, I've seen a little bit of that too, this idea that, oh, you know, it's almost like the gap theory and not to bring up another controversial subject right here at the end of the podcast. But this idea that as soon as data doesn't succeed um, at giving us exactly what we want, then we should throw our hands up at the whole thing and and and, and reject data and go back to thinking with our guts all the time. Um, I think uh, I think everybody made some really good points about that, that ultimately this is something that's going to get better over time. Um, sometimes we succeed and sometimes we don't succeed quite as much as we want. Um, but I think the important thing is to remember that this is actually something that has really reshaped politics over the last, um, I don't know, few election cycles, and that it's only going to continue to improve and continue to make uh, campaigns stronger and more efficient. Um, but with that, um, I'd like to give everybody a chance to kind of do one do one final thought. Um, we'll kind of go around the room and just wanted to say before that, thank you to everybody for joining um, the episode. Thanks for this really fantastic discussion. I feel like I've learned a lot more about how um, uh, data works inside of campaigns and, um, and, and 
it's really been great to have everybody. So thanks everybody for joining, and um, and let's do a quick uh, quick wrap up. Um, so just so everybody knows who's uh, who's uh, who's still listening, who's hung in with us for this entire um, for this entire hour um, hour plus. Um, I'm I'm Jonathan. I'm Jonathan Morgan. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Jonathan Morgan. I'm the co-host of Partially Derivative at Partially D. Um, come check us out at partiallyderivative.com. We're pretty much um, all over the internet. So we look forward to uh, to hearing from you and, and and give us a shout and let us know what you'd like to hear about on your uh, on your favorite data science podcast. Yeah, and I'm uh, I am uh, to be found at at AKM on Twitter and lots of places. And it's been a real pleasure. I have enjoyed this a lot, and uh, I look forward to another one. Thanks. This is Renee T. I'm at Becoming Data Sci on Twitter, and I'm at becomingadatascientist.com. And this has been really fun. We have to do it again. Yeah, this is Chris. I am at Chris Albon on Twitter, and yeah, rock on. This is Natalie Jackson. I'm at Natalie M J B on Twitter and be patient with polls. We'll figure it out. This is Joel. Uh, I wasn't kidding about the chief data scientist thing, really. Call me. Um, I'm at Joel Gruus on Twitter, J-O-E-L-G-R-U-S. And my podcast with Musclemen is, uh, what did we call it? Oh, yeah, Adversarial Learning. Oh, That's right. adversariallearning.com. So go check it out. We should record an episode by the time you hear this. Hey, this is Andrew Terrio. Uh, on Twitter, you can find me at PhD. That's T-H-E-R-R. I-A-U-L-T, Ph.D. And just a, a note for everybody on our side who's really uh, trying to figure out what the hell just happened to us. You know, my road of advice would be uh, calm down and wait and don't try to make any rash decisions or, or rush to judgment while we're all still a little too raw about this. Hey, this is Mark Stevenson. Uh, my Twitter account is at Mark J. Stevenson with a Ph. And I appreciate the you know discussion around how data and uh, campaigns work together. I think this cycle will tell us a lot, and I think that it will continue to grow in its role and uh, mature throughout the next couple cycles. All right, guys. Well, that's that's. I think that's everybody. Thanks, um, thanks for the wrap up. Thanks again to everybody for listening. Um, and and feel free to reach out to everybody who's been on the show. Um, if you didn't quite catch everybody's Twitter handle or don't know how to get in contact, feel free to reach out to hello at partiallyderivative.com um, over email, and we'll put you in touch with whoever you're looking for. So thanks again to everybody who participated. This was awesome. And thanks again to all of you for listening. And we'll see you next time.